Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and digital manufacturing and marketing. Wait, it says digital marketing. Who wrote that, that was down? probably a mistake. That mean, That's supposed to say digital manufacturing. Digital manufacturing? We're going to blame Chad GPT for that for sure. Yeah. Our pre-roll infected the, uh, the intro. Yeah. Um, so we are your hosts, Electrical Engineers, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. And this is episode 364. And you already heard the voices of Misha and Chris, who are, I think Misha is the CEO of Macrofab. Still to this Still day. To this day. Yes. And Chris is the other co-founder and CPO of Macrofab. That seems correct. Um, so, uh, man... Church, Chris Church was on the podcast, I want to say it was like February 2020, to talk about the end of electronics manufacturing as we know it. <laughs> I think we're still building stuff, though. You predicted that? Did, did I actually predict the end? of? Oh, you said as we know it. Okay, we yeah, we're it. at the beginning of the end of as we know it. Yes. Well, we make a lot of claims on this podcast. We can't necessarily say that all of them are true. The moment that someone starts live fact checking our podcast is the moment I'll pull my hair out. <laughs> the wheels are coming off. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then Misha was last on the podcast, man, back in 2018, five years ago. It can't be five years, is it? Really? Yeah, we talked about supply chain securities and like we, we did. That, that was a fun topic. I, I, I appreciate you letting me come back. Yeah, and and I just remember, I actually remember that podcast uh, vividly because Stephen thought everything that you were saying, Misha, was a conspiracy theory, and I'm like, no, all this stuff has happened, Stephen. I, I think I think <laughs> the one word that comes to mind with that was vector. I I don't think I've heard the word vector more than on that. When you're episode. in the cybersecurity world. It's all about vectors, <laughs> which means you got to turn around and see what's coming at you. Um, so do you, I don't have actually funny enough. I don't have anything written down of like what y'all do. Um, so Misha, <laughs> what, what's your, what's the day in life as CEO of Macrofab? Oh my God. What a complicated question. Um, I think every CEO has a pretty crazy day in general because I don't know. A lot of people have a lot of stuff on their schedules, but it's random. There is things that have to get done. Every quarter, there are things that have to get done every month, but that's interlaced with just explosions of unexpected events happening all, all over the place. So I would say, I don't know, 50% of what I do is unscheduled and it's just whatever comes at us. So um, I think the most that's probably the most interesting part about the job is that it's my job to think on a three to five year scale. And part of what I do is I help people zoom out once in a while and say, hey, I know you're doing something that impacts tomorrow, but we got to think about long-term things once in, once in a blue moon. But I also get to pivot once in a while and just deal with literally just the latest um, latest disaster of the day, which happens in startups all the time. It's fun. I don't know if that answers your question. It was more rhetorical, if anything. <laughs> but... <laughs> but depending on who you ask, you know, uh, for uh, for a lot of startup CEOs, I think the the cliche is like, look, your your job is to never let the company run out of money. So uh, at least in that sense, I feel like I've done something because we just raised uh, 
uh, a large round of capital. So um, we're not running out of money anytime soon. Well, congratulations. Thank you. And uh, fundraising is a, is a sadomasochistic process that I hate while I'm doing it, but I miss as soon as it's done. So it's uh, we're at the very, very tail end of that, but it's a, it's a fun process. It's, it's like, it's like dating and getting rejected hundreds of times over and over again until finally somebody says yes. Is there an app for that? There's several apps for that, and they're all very unfulfilling. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Chris, uh, I'm going to ask the same kind of question. Is uh, What's the day in life like as CPO, Chief Product Officer of Macrofab? I guess also co-founder. Because yeah. um, everyone on the podcast, I'm also the other co-founder. And but everyone knows like, you know what? Everyone's listened to me talk for like three hundred something plus hours of <laughs> podcasts. So there's actually a lot of overlap, right? You know, I mean, with what what Misha just said. So if you you think about the title, what I, what I do, what I ostensibly what I do is I lead our product and technology teams to you know deliver success to our customers. Um, but the reality is, is everything we do as a business is part of our product. So a big chunk of what I'm, you know, having to do on any given base day, you know, what I want to be doing is strategy, right? Thinking about where we're going, how we're going to get there, what is it going to take to get there? But in reality, most of the time I'm interacting with everybody who's in the process of delivering for the customer, whether it's, you know, in logistics or uh, manufacturing or somewhere else, listening to what's going on. And then adjusting that strategy and that that roadmap and everything that we're doing kind of in real time and helping them work through how to get, you know, back to that customer and help that customer be successful. So there's just, I, I would say it's like Misha, there's a lot of fires, um, but it's a little different in the sense that, you know, I, I'm not ha- I'm not being tasked to solve them so much as to prevent them from happening again in the future. Or, or trying to see the fires before they even, you know, become a thing. Yeah. You, you, you are expected to be a little bit psychic. Um, but the reality is, is, you know, in engineering, right. All systems are going to break down. Entropy is going to happen, right? There's going to, there are going to be issues and you can observe signs long before they really happen. And the trick is to, to know when you need to react to them and when you should just ignore them because you're not going to, they're not going to have an impact on anything right now. But in a lot of ways, the the jobs that Chris and I do actually overlap quite a bit, and they're they're unique in some ways. Um, there's not this is not the job of everybody in the business, but there is at least two people who are tasked with figuring out what this thing we're building really is. Right, like what is macrofab and what can it turn into over time? How to actually make it grow and successful? If we were to envision this a very large company. In the future, how do we actually get it there? There's a lot of overlap between you know, Chris and I in, in trying to figure out what that looks like. So a good portion of our time is spent on that to make sure that whatever we're working through now folds into that future version of that, which is not dissimilar than where you guys started, right? I wasn't there at the beginning, right? So at the beginning, it was the two of you guys, and I'm sure there were a lot of those conversations. I actually find the whole process fascinating of two people deciding they're going to go build a company together, figuring out what that might look like in the future. And it's almost never the exact 
picture of that, right? It's 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 fuzzy and it mutates over time. And Parker, you and I have talked a lot about, you know, y- your view of how things were going to work out and how that's different as time goes on. It's a moving target, right? It's a it's a combined product of a lot of people's imaginations in a lot of ways. So I, I think th- that part of the job is by far my favorite, right? That's a lot of fun to do. I like that 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 sentence, the product of many imaginations. Because I think we've already just found a podcast title. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, that's actually a really good way to put it. Um, and yeah, how it morphs and mutates over time. Yeah, we, we have a we have a board member, um, and um, he's is, he's is from the electronics distribution industry. And like the favorite things he said to me is like there, there was one question I asked him. I forget what it was. It wasn't it, it, it wasn't terribly important, but it, he usually gives us you know tremendous knowledge and a lot of advice. But that time he was like, I thought you guys are going to go out of business a long time ago, so I'm not qualified to answer this question. Uh, if you're asking me what you're going to do in the future. I didn't think any of this stuff was going to work. So you're prob- your guess is probably better than my opinion. Um, hey, the podcast even started that way. Like when Steve and I started it, we we're like, there's no way they're going to let us do more than like 10 episodes. <laughs> 10 was pushing it. Yeah, 10 was pushing it, especially at the first couple ones. <laughs> yeah, I mean, starting with a blank canvas is fascinating, I think, right? But I, but I think, Misha, you, you bring up a real good point here. Um, Early on, you know, and Parker will remember this, early on, everything was a product of two people's imagination, right? We had to own every outcome. We had to do all that. And we had to be constantly extremely opinionated. As the company grows and gets more mature and we have more customers, you know, in, in the leadership roles, we get less about, you know, saying what the future is, predicting it, and more about directing those streams if you would, so that they align. And so all the different ideas coming from all the different people, you know, helping them figure out which ones are the right ones to continue advancing, which ones we need to pull back on for a little while and watch for a little while. Um, you know, that, that's, that's, I think, one of the, the most interesting changes about it. Our own personal opinions matter less. It matters more that we're able to focus what everyone else is already talking about and help them pick the signal out of the noise in that. Not, not the least of which are things that our customers are willing to pay for, right? Because the, the, the number of companies out there where the founders thought the problem was big and very important and worth solving that really didn't find an adequate number of people willing to agree with them enough to actually spend some of their own money on, that, on solving that problem, that's probably the essence of any company getting born, right? I mean, there's... There, there are a lot of people out there who would love to build a business, but it meets reality of customers not really necessarily caring, right? Well, at the end of the day, you have to have you have to create something that somebody wants. You have to scratch a niche in some way. <clears throat> That's right. Um, I mean, I think part of it is in, even in the introduction that Parker did. I don't know if that's a standard thing you guys say. Do you always mention digital manufacturing in your introduction? For each episode, the last word, we always change it to reference something in that episode. Well, the the reason I'm bringing that up is because you guys didn't really start out as a digital manufacturing company. Wasn't that original discussion was all about tabletop pick-and-place machines? The the original was to do software-defined hardware. No, I think think Parker, that, that that was the... 
that was the original actual macrofab idea. But we did we did talk about a desktop factory before we decided to start macrofab and killed that. Yeah. Well, because there was a there was actually at the time a couple of other companies that were doing that, and we saw that they were doing it, and we're like, well, it's there's already like three or four people doing that, so not that. Well, that's the reason I brought up um, digital manufacturing because that is a thing. I'm not sure if it's necessarily a massive thing yet, right? So I think it shows promise. But the, the but the tabletop factory, right? Tempo did that for a while. Tempo ended up moving out of being a um, um, a tabletop factory and really moved closer to what we're talking about as digital manufacturing. But I'm still fascinated to learn that there's still companies trying to build tabletop pick and place machines, right? Uh, um, so I don't know. I, I think the way that this market has evolved and it's still very early, I think it's pretty interesting. Um, I mean, you guys were there and paying attention to it a lot more than I was, but it, it sure seemed like at, in the early days of it, there was this feeling like additive manufacturing is coming in the future. We're going to be printing, you know, jet engine parts in our garages using our uh, our three D printers. And there were a lot of companies started with that premise, and that was called digital manufacturing, even though none of that turned out to be true. Right? Like we're not printing anything for jet engines in our houses. Right? That's not a thing. I I think what you talked about earlier, which is um, when you know when you start a business, you're trying to solve a problem and sell that solution to someone. Um, and so a lot of engineers are like, I need to get prototypes faster. So the fastest way for me to do that is to build a machine that puts these boards together. I'm going to sell this to other people times a hundred. I right? think it's that, but I think it's also <laughs> just the, the premise of 3D printing, right? If you start with technology but not the problem, then you got to back it into a business model. I think uh, distributed factories that live in people's houses becomes one of the ideas you come up with, which is why you know the maker movement was massive, and there were there were a number of companies out there. Shapeways was was one of them, right? Where you were going to have these distributed factories. That I mean, there's a lot of venture capital that went into those models. Um, none of that really worked necessarily, right? All, all those companies pivoted to something else, right? Even though um, I think in people's imagination, it's still kind of alive and well. Like I mean, Chris turned me on to. What's that show you, you had me watch on? Uh, um, it was a sci-fi thing with robots in it. I know that narrows it down. Um, yeah, there's sci-fi thing with robots. <laughs> the Expanse? No, not The Expanse. Was it, it was Carbon was it Black. A show? It was or... a show. No, the most recent <laughs> one. <laughs> it just concluded on it, Prime, oh, right? Oh, so it's a oh, uh, um, very famous one. Why am I blanking I know, the name? And suddenly, um, the peripheral, the peripheral. It's on Prime. Peripheral. That's right. So in the peripheral, there are those, you know, three D printing bureaus in, you know, in the middle of nowhere in North Carolina, printing out um, electronics parts. Right. So there's still people living that dream. Right. Like that's like it looked like a like a Kinko's shop. Right. Well, to be fair, it's William Gibson. He kind of invented the dream. So. <laughs> Was the three D printing thing in the in in the book as well? Okay, in that show, don't they three D print like pharmaceuticals? No, they don't three D print pharmaceuticals. Show. They three D print like the they can print like electronics and stuff uh, integrated. Yeah, 
but okay i must be thinking of another show but i think misha i think you're i think what you're hitting on there is just you know this is this is innovation in general right a lot of people feel see a problem right and then they all attack it from different ways and i think the the question here and this is you know how we come up with all these you know all the best stuff we have comes from a lot of different people trying different solutions to a you know this kind of general problem I think the trick is for a lot of these companies to recognize they have the ability to not be connected to their solution and to be more connected to the problem, right? To say, hey, this solution may not actually be, it may be working to some degree, but it's not really the solution to this problem. And able to to keep pivoting and refocusing and dialing in that solution until they get something that really has mass market appeal. So I want to switch gears because I just looked at, I glanced at chat and uh, Caesar in chat asks, how did the name Macrofab come about? And the funny thing is, I don't I, I even do. recall anymore. Okay. I think you just I, I think you just said the name to me. I'm like, that's no, like, like everything else. You take a rule-based <laughs> approach. It has to be two words. They have to be smashed together because it will stick in someone's head better that way. And the two capitalizations will help it stand out. It must not exist anywhere in Google in anything even remotely related to what you're looking for. And um, it has to have the essence of the product you're doing, but not explicitly the product. That's funny because we, we actually went through this process with our first company when we named Alert Logic, but Chris hadn't exactly articulated the algorithm yet. Like he could clearly write the the band name generator now uh, quite easily. He's got the he's got the, he's got the recipe. <laughs> Sure. Startup generator name, but that's, but that's exactly how we came up with Alert Logic. It's two two words smashed together that loosely relate to the function of the company. So we did figure out all those rules that you know the, the day we selected that name, but that was more of a random walk. Uh, I think there were people like throwing out random things, and I can distinctly remember Chris having some kind of a rule based uh, approach to choosing a name. So yeah, that's funny. Yeah, and, and I think I was just we were mm. writing in your old Tacoma, and Chris was just like, "So how about the name Macrofab?" And I'm like, "That sounds good," and that was that was yeah. it. That, that's all that. There's not some big like. It's not like on um, mm-hmm. on Sil- the Silicon Valley show where like they always have these crazy stories of like of how stuff comes about. Yeah. It's like no, there was no crazy story here. What I think is interesting, the company has changed to some degree. But the name has fit every change we've implemented quite well, which begs the question, like, what do we do now? Does that remotely resemble what you guys thought we're going to do when you launched the business? No, I don't think so. Oh, man. No. um, When we did the first pivot, it made more sense. Actually, the name made more sense off to the first pivot, which was to actually like build stuff <laughs> like our because we, we first came up with like to do software defined hardware. And so we were designing hardware that you could um, like a breadboard that would like connect itself together. And um, we just couldn't hit the price point for that product. And so we were and basically it was like we we're going to start there and then eventually build the whole tool chain. Right to build hardware, but start at like the prototype level. And then we flipped that around and decided to go from the opposite end, which was build manufacturing that can be software defined in in essence, 
which is you know upload the platform and that kind of stuff and then and then that's gelled since then right i mean it's it's morphed and evolved but well that's generally the structure. yeah the whole i i didn't even think like a marketplace structure was ever no, we didn't we didn't know that and that was to be fair that i think we borrowed that liberally from zometry right uh, yeah and to be fair we wouldn't have done it if it hadn't have been an existential thing for us we needed to build a bigger factory to keep up with the demand we had and we couldn't get anyone to give us money to build a bigger factory so we had to come up with a way to scale and grow and then that's when we're like well what if we use other people's capacity because it wasn't a marketplace at first right it was just we were going to use other people's capacity and then when that then when we were struggling with making yeah, that true. work and scale that's when we started borrowing from zometry and saying well they're making this whole marketplace thing work you know maybe we can do that too right we can learn from what they're doing and maybe instead of trying to schedule capacity we just we just let people come and take it right and we let people tell us that they're ready for work yeah because that was actually yeah the first implementation was us we were trying to schedule out other people's facilities and that was a nightmare <laughs> i remember like we had to have, we also had to have all of our tracking stuff working i remember going down to a factory in mexico oh yeah. oh and at at other factories too yeah steven yeah. i think I, actually i'm trying to remember if, if you were there with me steven when we went to yeah. the first factory yeah. in mexico and started screwing on uh barcode scanners onto their machines <laughs> and they were like Oh, I didn't know that actually happened. That's this is news to me. I was there. I I I remember I remember talking to the people down there at the factory and and trying to come up with a solution on how we were going to do it. And they just took a drill and started drilling holes in the side of their machine to bolt. They let you do that? That's amazing to me. No, they didn't let me do it. No. They 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 did it themselves. But I I wasn't assuming that that was going to be the solution that they were okay with. But they <laughs> seemed to be fine with it mounting brackets to the side of their machine by just drilling holes in them. it's crazy what 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 you can actually accomplish when you just really have you know full confidence and you're willing to throw your your whole self at it and you know you'll, you'll find that people are willing to do you know all kinds of things to succeed right and you just gotta you gotta find something that's repeatable and valuable for everybody in there so i think that process is still on, ongoing because uh you know, there's been a non-trivial am amount of money uh, that went into trying to build a new business model for manufacturing. Um, and in some cases, like Parker said, you, you got to find the problem that's, that somebody has and compelling enough to actually solve. But then the next stage of that problem is, is that is that problem that is worth solving big enough for people to pay enough money for it to actually sustain a business, multiple companies. And this has been interesting to watch as well. There's been a number of companies where the obvious thing that they're working on is um, is accelerating prototype development. And while that's a problem, it doesn't look like that's a big enough problem for multiple businesses to solve it as the only problem they're focused on. The, it's really working, right? I, I think Zometry is, um, is really doing a phenomenal job, right? Those guys went public. I think last year. So clearly providing access to a lot of manufacturing capacity out there and just the notion that you can get access to a lot of 
um, different manufacturing processes, and they can take it through various stages of scale. Now, it may get too expensive at some point, so they, they don't do a lot of high volume production, but still, it's a it's a high scale operation. Um, it looks like the you know the the prototype only models really haven't scaled nearly as far. Um, you know, like Tempo is still very much low volume focused, and they go public, but very different go public process than Zometry, right? Zometry is, uh, I mean, I, I think at this point, Zometry is going to do maybe what four hundred million dollars this year. That's a that is a fast scaling business. We haven't seen anything like that with anybody building prototypes per se, right? So um, I think people are still figuring out what this digital manufacturing thing is and why somebody should care and. Uh, what what big problems are worth solving, right? Yeah, I'm just trying to think of of uh, on the prototyping side because that's actually where we, we kind of went with, right? We were batching. It wasn't really about speed, though. It was just it was more about low cost prototypes. Um, we did have a like five day turn eventually, but the five day turn was really like bootstrap style, like. We would get, oh man, I remember the, this turned into like Macrofab eight years ago, the podcast, right? We had a, a, a piece of glass that was like a window and we put up masking tape. And so we basically made a spreadsheet on glass so we could like keep track of stuff. <laughs> and that, and when that got so overwhelming to maintain i don't steve i don't know if we had we were still using it when you joined that was right um, before i came on yeah and uh it got to the point where we had enough orders where that you couldn't maintain it that way and then we finally built it into the platform or, or i actually gotta say chris built it into the platform haven't we actually taken that one that exact instance because there there have been several iterations of that in the platform on, on our on our back end and I, I remember there was one that was exactly that, the thing that was on that window. And it, right. And it still worked, but I think yeah, we but that was the first iteration. We yeah. finally just deleted it from the code base recently. Because it's like we've got five other ways to oh, <laughs> look no. at the same information. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was not a very good way of doing it either. It was just like a way the checklist and what the due dates were and like, and, uh, but yeah, so for the what spurred this is the five day. Um, it was a five door order would come in, and then I would go on Mauser and DigiKey and order parts right then, and order boards right then, and then it would show up like you know a day and a half later, and then Stephen and I would be out on the floor building boards. <laughs> These oh, it was all hands orders. on deck. Yeah, it was when we actually got a five day order in. That was like all hands on deck. Yeah. Misha's <laughs> always trying to tell me to bring back the five day thing. And I keep looking back at that going, I never want to do that again. I never want to do that again. <laughs> yeah, because it was. Yeah, it was it, it, the five day. It was a lot of fun. Um, it was people want five day service. It's coming back someday. It, it's, it was insane. I, well, it was just because at the time we didn't really have the the integration with the machines at the time that we have now. And with it, with like inventory, like inventory at the time wasn't a thing that we had in the platform. Um, uh, and so you'd have to maintain all that yourselves. You had to basically do everything. So don't, because really at the time, the only thing the platform did was manage the bomb and build in the Gerbers for the customer. 
yeah, and, yeah. The, uh, the integration into the machines at that time was us running onto the floor, being like, "We need to get this done. We're shoving it into production." <laughs> yeah. And uh, whereas nowadays it would be barring supply chain problems, I think we could probably do a five day. I'm, I'm not going to say easy. I, I do agree. Right now, it's not the time to launch something like that, just because component market is still crazy right now it's a supply but i do problem. think at some point uh, it, it, it will yeah. probably make sense by the way the, the, that's the thing i've been here four and a half years um i understand why an engineer would want their design to be prototype faster why it has to be as cheap as humanly possible i don't fully understand yet because i think there's just so many other considerations that's- to where like price would not be the top of my list like i i i personally would not send my design to china i just wouldn't do it um, but people do, right? Like for a lot of people, they will absolutely trade out, you know, 20% cost down uh, to Asia. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure I understand that fully. That still is a great mystery to me. And uh, I've asked people, they can't always explain it or verbalize it. I, I, I think uh, the the badge of honor of uh, on time and under budget, uh, if you're doing engineering project lead, that, I mean, I think that explains a good bit of it. So, uh, and a lot of times, I think engineers, myself included, at times, have been bad at projecting costs of what a project's going to be. So, a lot of times, you you kick off a project and you set a budget for it, and now you actually have to stick to that budget, and it's difficult. So, you know, finding fast and cheap uh, is attractive. Um, as as you grow in in experience, you know, you learn how to how to appropriately budget at the beginning, but uh, I, I've certainly run but into in business that. terms, so, so your I, I, time as an engineer matters a lot. Like uh, yeah. the, the, the people are truly the expensive part of the operation. Um, the actual circuit boards themselves are not in most cases, right? So um, like getting people to collaborate and getting people to make faster decisions, all of that has a lot more impact on ultimate iteratability of any product, right? I mean, you're trying to iterate through multiple designs to get to a better and better product so you can actually launch it, sell it to somebody, make it put it in somebody's hands. Um, I'm not sure if the, you know, the unit price of the, of that early stage circuit assembly matters that much in the grand scheme of things. Just depends on how granular you get with it. Yeah. It's interesting to think about where that came from. And it's probably from the previous company that, when I went to go work with church at, <laughs> or he hired me, I guess there, I didn't go work for him. He hired me, um, was a uh, dynamic perception, which was a open source, uh, hardware company, I guess, software too, hardware and software company. And that was actually what's kind of spurred macrofab was like building electronics, like really sucked for that company. Um, cause we, we had to third party it out and we wanted to build it in the United States and, to get any kind of volume that we were selling, we'd have to buy like, you know, two, three years worth of product on the shelf and it would be open source. So the moment that it hit market a month later, a competitor had completely cloned it and it's just building them in, you know, overseas at that point. And it's like, well, how do we compete with that? You know, how do we, how do we enable, well, it's more like not us competing is like, how did we enable other small companies to compete with that model? And that was actually what kind of spurred this idea of, you know, mixed jobs and lowering the NRE costs and that kind of stuff. And then what actually, what's really interesting, what happened was we were getting customers 
that didn't believe the cost could be that low. And we would lose business because of that, that we were too cheap. I mean, for the dynamic perception product, people didn't believe. No, no, for Macrofab. Uh, yeah. 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 I, I went, went for Macrofab. Yeah. Chris, <laughs> when you told me that, I can't remember when you told me that. I like, I just couldn't believe it. That. Yeah. I mean, that, that was a, a concern. Well, I can see it, right? You got to have a certain amount of credibility. <laughs> You're a new company. No one's ever heard of you. Me doing this has been expensive forever. And then you come in here and you're going to do it for a tenth of the price of someone else. Yeah, I'm going to let someone else take that risk. I realize I'm only out a tenth of the money, but I just, it's not credible, right? And yeah. then it became credible, right? People figured it out. You know, people were saying, like, you know, this is working. I am, you know, having a great experience. And then, then you have the opposite problem where <laughs> that sets the new bar of expectation for everybody. And, um, you know, and that, that did become a challenge for us for a while, right? Parker, mm -hmm. we had a lot of people who wanted really cheap prototypes and needed a lot of help getting those prototypes to be manufacturable. And it was kind of like, well, you know, the, the cheap thing there. was you got what you put in. <laughs> and I understand you wanted us to catch all of these issues, right? But you didn't pay for that, right? And that was how we made that cheap, that, that service cheap for you. And, yeah, it was a lot of automation that no one was looking right, at it right. because there wasn't the you weren't paying for someone to look at it, right? Um, and that was really hard for people to understand. And what we kind of learned, I guess, was it was it's it became more important to build mm -hmm. make sure the stuff was built right versus being built cheap or inexpensive, I guess. Um, which that kind of changed when we went to more of a distributed manufacturing model and the marketplace that kind of all happened at the same time. There. Yeah. Yeah. That's because everyone feels bad in the process. The factory feels bad. You know, your team feels bad. You know, there's no one involved when, you know, someone's product comes out and it doesn't work and there was a mistake, there was an issue somewhere in it. Everyone involved in that does really actually feel bad about it. I think most people don't realize that, that, that people take it very personally and you know you say well we could have prevented that and you didn't do the things you could do to prevent that then everyone's like man i don't want to be a part of this right so you have to you have to kind of look and say maybe we need to retune that maybe the cheap thing isn't you know isn't going to keep everyone engaged and you know what we need to do is focus on the right thing and you know focus on the the, the delivery model that really works and is going yeah I, I think the big impact, like the biggest thing that sticks in my mind was we ha had someone place an order and then um, we loaded on the machine and it was clearly, because this is the time that the customers mm -hmm. did all the rotations themselves, right? Component. And uh, it was clearly the customer didn't do the rotation. So the, like if we put them on the board, how they specified the parts wouldn't have been solder on the board. Right. And it was one of those, our model is to not touch this data, but this customer will just get a board with parts in the bag, <laughs> at the right. end, <laughs> which is not what this customer is expecting. And that's when we kind of re <laughs> started realizing that that just didn't, wasn't really going to work. That was the start of it, I guess. Because that was kind of early on. I think that was like 
Steven was there when we saw that because I think Steven, Steven was actually the one who called me over. He's like, so like none of these parts will go on the board. <laughs> They'll just yeah, come off. Uh, Misha would find some pleasure <laughs> yeah. in this. Um, there was actually a board working session about what we were going to do about the customer part orientation issue. You say a board working session yes, with the yes. board of directors? You, you were, I was you were on part the board. Of it. I don't know. Uh, no. Actually, I don't know that you engaged in it. There, there was another board I, member I, I, that I, I, kept it going well into the night one night. And it, there's another story. I can't say that. I can't tell the rest of that story on the podcast, but it, but it led but yeah, to that was, order review was the outcome. But yeah, that was... Yeah, it was just like our our strategy is to not touch it, but customer will be angry. So, and that was like that's also another thing: the customer can't be angry. So it's like two one's that <laughs> two conflicting yeah pillars. That was the two pillars. There, there were lots of suggestions effort. around. Maybe we can use AI to solve this problem. Maybe we can do all this. And finally, we just ended up with why don't we just review the boards? and correct the mistakes that that gets huge marks for my customers by the way the, the um and, and i've seen the tickets where we've saved a number of designs just because somebody checked it out and uh, and made sure that um everything yeah, was once, right. once you're in there you know you're, you're providing a service right you know you look and you say what well, what more can we do in here right what more can we find can we provide more value in here and, yeah, there's always opportunities for it you know, I bet most people um, who listen to the podcast probably don't realize that everything we're talking about right now, you know, the, the low volume um, um, electronics uh, production, that's probably only about 20% of our business, right? So m much of where we've actually grown, and this has been um, a, a big journey in figuring out where the biggest problems are, it's actually with customers building in much higher volumes, right? And in fact, uh, our biggest customer, I think we'll ship something close to a million units for them um, this year. And uh, um, it, and this is counterintuitive, right? Uh, I think, I mean, I was there at the beginning, right? I, I may not have been at the office every day, and but, um, but we started out enabling uh, fast prototype production. So how do you go from that to customers that are building in very high volume? And this is and this is the reason why we have new investors, and this is the reason why we keep raising money. Because that's another counterintuitive thing: why do manufacturing companies raise capital at all? Right? Usually, manufacturing companies they get started and they need to get profitable, and they grow um, out of their profits. We've raised you know a fair bit of uh, venture capital at, at this point. Um, this last round was forty-two million dollars, and uh, um, and uh, um, some really interesting investors that uh, that joined this round. But that takes our capital total to $82 million, which if you do the math, our investors expect us to be a multi-billion dollar business one day, right? Nobody, nobody invests you know, close to $100 million into a business without saying, look, this could be a really big thing. Um, I think the thing we stumbled on over time is that um, the types of um, technology we wrote to uh, automate a lot of the manufacturing processes is really compelling for people trying to um, to solve a lot of big supply chain problems, right? The, what, the, the biggest thing that people come to us now for when we deal with companies at scale is um, how do I take that initial design that I build uh, with your prototype service 
But let's say I love the way it works and I don't want to leave your platform and I want to keep building with Macrofab. Um, usually companies have to go to three, maybe four factories in that journey, right? They're going to go find uh, a larger manufacturer. They're going to find a larger manufacturer yet, yet again at maybe 10 to 20,000 units of scale. And then when you get to millions, you to find yet another manufacturer. Um, what a lot of our customers are finding is that uh, they can stay with us and stay in the same platform. And that that uh, junction, right, that point where you switch from one factory to another, it takes, what, four to six months to go find a, a new manufacturer and kind of onboard into a new um, uh, into a new factory. We eliminate all of that lag, right? You can essentially stay with Macrofab for every part of your manufacturing process. So that's how we ended up scaling into this model where 80% of our business now comes from customers that do very, very large uh, jobs. And now they're coming to us in some cases without even prototyping with us. Now they're coming to us saying, look, I got to get out of China uh, and I got um, to find factory capacity either in US or in Canada or in Mexico. And that's what's driving, I would say, half of our pipeline are customers that are coming to us saying, I need to be able to find kind of risk-free manufacturing outside of uh, Asia um, and uh, in some cases move production out of China into something like Mexico, for example, right? So that's a lot of what we ended up uh, doing. And and now it's kind of an end-to-end service. You can start with the prototype of scale all the way up to high-volume production, which I think certainly wasn't where Macrofab got started. Uh, pretty far away from our original thesis, right? I mean, originally, like, the platform wouldn't even quote anything over, like, 100 units. So, yeah. I, I, I was about to say, I, I remember it kind of being sold to me in that way. It, it sold to me as in, like, explained. In, but but the, the difference between prototype and manufacturing run was on the order of 100 to 1,000 units as opposed to 5 to a million. <laughs> And I know we had we had struggled with that over the years, you know, trying to find that right combination of you know feedback to the user. Eventually, I think we just said, "Look, you plug in whatever you want. If you like that price, if you're happy with it, we'll build it. You want a million units at that price? I don't care. We'll go." Funny enough, we went at one point. We had different like production tiers, if you would call that, and. We honestly actually went back to almost the original <laughs> style, like uh, what I called the UFO interface um, of quote of, of, of right. displaying the quote. Like it, you just type a number in and it'll give you what the number is. Um, and uh, <laughs> I, I miss the alien. We, we literally, yeah, we called it the alien color scheme. Yeah, I miss that. I miss the UFO color. And this is how, um, and the colors were picked because it was the, it's the most contrast. And so in the least amount of people would be, uh, um, would have colorblindness on that color scheme was the, that was the entire reason for it. Yes. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. We're, we're getting away from the depth of the conversation that Misha just had us yeah. on. I we're getting into something completely <laughs> banal here, but. Well, no, the best thing is, is this is like the trajectory of like, because like Misha is like CEO and he's not supposed to get in the weeds. And I'm like the exact opposite <laughs> of like, I'm always, I'm like the weed man. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the takeaway was the, the alien color scheme was over optimizing for a set of parameters that actually didn't matter. 
we wanted every colorblind person to be able to use it, it to have perfect, a per, I can't remember what the, the ratio of contrast between every single color was. And you end up with this like neon festivity on your screen. <laughs> yeah. And everyone hates it. <laughs> yeah, no one liked it except like Church and I. <laughs> we were the only ones that liked it. <laughs> but, but I think this, this kind of comes... We will bring this back around the, 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 the subject, which, which Misha started us on. It, it's again, it's going back to what problem you're really trying to solve, right? You get a solution in mind. You get all these parameters. I have to have cheap. I have to have fast, right? I have to have all these things because people are telling me that's what they want. But that's not actually what they're paying for, right? They're, you know, to, to Misha's point, the real problem here is people want to get a product to market. That is the thing that they want a solution for. It's, you know, cheap prototypes. That's one person in that process from beginning to end, right? That engineer's desires to not spend more than 20 bucks. It may be in total conflict with the product owner's desire that they get this done yesterday. Right? And so you know, when you go back and you look at what the actual problem is someone's trying to solve, you start creating new solutions like a marketplace for manufacturing, um, you start saying, Hey, I am going to take, take on a million unit order, um, because we're here to help them get their product to market. And, and I still think it's counterintuitive to, um, to a lot of people because look, we started out selling to engineers and still do that's still, when I say 20% of our business, that makes it sound like it's an unimportant part of the business. Actually, nothing could be further from the truth. Our biggest deals start out with engineers discovering our service and then bringing us in and saying, hey, I found this thing. It doesn't work at all like what you would expect, but I think it's what we need. So actually, our, our, our biggest deals started out as, uh, as engineering-driven deals. Um, those engineers are the first ones to kind of get infected with the idea. But I think one of the biggest things that um, is still um, endemic to the way that the manufacturing industry works is it's all based on monolithic idea of what of your factory and where your stuff gets built and you know we get into these debates believe it or not we argue with customers that that happens um so you know we'll talk to traditional supply chain people and they'll say look i i'm going to choose one factory and that factory is going to be the factory where i work um the rest of the time i know how to choose the perfect factory and our answer to them is you know that's not the way the most resilient systems out there work for example uh in a cloud world you don't deal with a single data center anymore. You don't deal with a single server anymore. You deal with these distributed fabrics that give you access to a lot of capacity. So we started doing that with manufacturing. That's where, and, and now we're starting to, to win over customers that actually want that from day one. They real, you know, the the pandemic was actually kind of a big journey. Um, there have been a lot of people that probably two years ago would have told us no. Now coming back to us and saying, I think I get it. None of this stuff is stable. Uh, and, you know, I think about my, my Chinese suppliers and the Chinese government can just turn off not just a factory. They can turn off the entire, you know, city of Shenzhen and all of a sudden nothing's getting built anymore. I need to actually build real redundant, redundancy and resiliency to what I'm doing. And all of a sudden, you know, this idea of a fabric of factories that all work together to give you the product you need doesn't sound crazy anymore. It actually sounds like the way it should work. So I think over time, we're going to see people kind of rewire 
their ideas of how manufacturing should really operate. And that's what I think is happening. There's still new companies being born with different business models funded by venture capital dollars that still may fail or they may work. I don't know. I think manufacturing is going to look very different 10 years from now. Which is a really good segue into a question that I was going to ask is, so what's the biggest challenge Macrab is going to face in the next five years? I would imagine church has a or different 10 years, I guess. Um, well, why don't we start with yours? <laughs> yeah, put um, you on the spot. <laughs> so I, I'm not going to give you one. I'm going to give you a, a twofold challenge. I think in a lot of ways, because we built a new model for how to build products, right? The, the whole idea is, look, you start in a digital environment, you start on our platform, and then you stay on our platform as we build in higher volumes. And you don't have to be in multiple factories, but you can be. And your factories are portable, and we can put you into multiple factories at the same time or move you if you're so inclined, right? Um, I think that's a pretty radical idea. We have more, I mean, we're talking about companies paying millions of dollars to do this now, right? Um, But at the end of the day, that's not the way manufacturing works. So I think educating the market is probably my my biggest concern. If we don't convince people that that's the way it should work, uh, we're not going to reach that point where you... I hate using cliches, but like crossing the chasm is a thing, right? Like we're still dealing primarily with early adopters. Um, So we we have to go tell that story. we got to convince people that uh, it's the right way to go build product, which deals with the second challenge of we cannot fuck it up. Like that is very important, right? Like the um, this stuff has to work, right? Like this isn't something where, and you know, I kind of marvel at some of the, naive stuff we were able to do in a software world. I mean, Google had Gmail with a beta tag in it breaking half the time for four years, right? I mean, it was a, it was a long-running joke about whether Gmail was ever going to go to production. That doesn't really work in manufacturing. So we got to both build a new model that gets people something they don't have yet, but also be best in class at building stuff and recognize that a lot of the stuff that we build is mission critical and there's really not a lot of margin for error. For some of our customers, they literally tell us, look, the number of units that can have fail in a field is zero. Um, that is what you're building, right? So um, th- that's a tough thing to do, but it's also a lot of fun, I would say. So I think I'm actually not going to have a different answer. I'm just going to be more focused in one area. Um, I may say it differently. Uh, it, it's pretty straightforward from my perspective, right? Everything we do is fairly complex. Um, and I know Parker knows this uh, inside and out. Um, our, our product team certainly knows this. Our operations teams know this. There are so many different, every, every product is unique in its challenges and how we have to help that customer uh, get it into manufacturing. Um, I'm, I'm, every single day I'm shown, well, we need to do this one special thing we never did before. And the process isn't really flexible enough for this and the tool isn't flexible enough. And how do we you know, work around this? How do we adapt the system quickly to do it? So I think the, the biggest challenge facing us in the, you know, in the near term here is the ability to actually keep up and build a resilient system around all the complexity that our customers are bringing to us. And, you know, it's the it, it's Misha's not fuck up in a completely different way not fuck up at scale, right? Because we can get that right for the customers we are at a current level. But when you're doubling that 
and you're tripling that and the number of problems you're having to deal with on a given given day is increasing, you know, in, you know, multiplying like that. Um, I think that's the, the real big challenge. And, you know, for us as a business, we have to be plotting that course now, right? We have to be learning what we're learning today and then out there actually building for that future state. Um, even if we don't know where it's going to end up, we have to be building to that every day. Yeah, it's 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 the journey from you're going to get alien colors for a PCB in the platform to this super flexible platform that can handle anything. Um, that's the, that's that's going to be the toughest yeah. thing, I think. Um, how do you handle? Because most most CMs do four or five products. Um, Steven, your your uh, place. How many products did y'all build? We might be a little bit unique because we had our catalog was fifty five products. We probably at any one point in time had twenty of those in production, and we had upwards of fifteen to twenty clients that we were doing. So it was a lot of mix, but the majority of that wasn't over a hundred to three hundred units. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's one thing is like, how do you do a CM that is seeing that many products in like two <laughs> weeks? <laughs> but there are, that's actually there, there are factories out there that are perfectly fit for that place. kind of volume. <laughs> right. Uh, um, and, and that's the thing I keep learning about is just the diversity of just factory capacity, especially in, in us. There are a lot of factories out there and that's the, you know, when Chris said nobody wanted to give us money to build more factories, th that was true. But also, like, there's a lot of factories out there. Um, the world hardly needs, any, you know, for us to build any more of them. Um, and people that really love building products. So, you know, when, when we talk, because we consider factories to be our customers, too. We have literally have product managers for factories. We have a separate team that goes out there and works with factories. Um you know, their, their problems are fascinating, too, because like the incremental, the marginal customer in a factory is the hardest and most expensive one to source, right? Like you said, factories typically have, you know, they, I think their bread and butter are four or five customers. They usually have about 20 or so. Well, they may need 22 in order to get to 90% utilization, but those are the hardest ones to sell. Like you got you to gotta get them to fit into the smallest production slots. They can't be too big. They can't be too small. They got to be just right. That's a, I mean, that's a really hard customer to go find. Um, so there's there's mismatches in this market all over the place. And that's where marketplaces really do well, right? You got the Goldilocks problem. I, I need a flow of the right options so I can pick the just the right one for today's problems, right? And you know, I think that's why we've been able to be as successful as we have been because we've been able to solve that Goldilocks problems for many of our factory and it's, customers. It's funny calling it a marketplace because uh, it, it, it is, right? There's there's absolutely a marketplace mechanism there for matching up. Like the the catalog problem that Stephen described, that's exactly what it does, right? There is a, we're matching the diversity of people's um, items in their catalog with the diversity of factories that we have um, in our portfolio. But it's, but usually marketplaces are, essentially virtual enterprises, right? The, they don't have physical, the physical plant. Uh, 
for a marketplace, we have some big facilities. Like the, I'm talking about facilities that we own. Like the, like the the facility in Guadalajara uh, is pretty big, and the one in Houston that we're building that we're about to move into is even larger. It used to be Foxconn, right? So we're literally taking over the Foxconn facility. So um, even though it's a marketplace, you know, we still found that customers. You know, we, you still got to be able to build product in house, and you still got to be able to build. Uh, and uh, you know the the fastest term products are still built in house for Macrofab and first articles are definitely built in our factory. So even though uh, we build in very high volume in all sorts of factories in U.S., Canada, and Mexico, but uh, um, our facility is gonna is gonna be pretty badass. It's uh, the one we're moving into looks really nice. You guys gonna do like an open house episode where you walk around with the camera? That's actually a good idea. Um, actually, the uh, this is a really good segue. Is uh, was it May fourth? Is there's going to be an open house at Macrofab. We're going to have a another uh, engineering meetup. I was going to say we haven't like done one in years. Six, five, six years. Wait, wait. are we, we going to have a? Yeah. we're going to bring the um, meetup back. Awesome. Nice. awesome. Yes, May fourth. Um, so if you're in the Houston area or want to, like fly and visit houston i don't know why you'd want to do that but um you could for the may 4th meetup yeah for the may 4th meetup <laughs> misha not everyone it will fly for to like go eat places well if you're gonna fly to eat uh things yeah houston exactly. is a great place to do that let me switch those words around not everyone flies to go eat at restaurants in places yes uh only godzilla flies to eat places <laughs> I don't think God does Godzilla even fly though. G- given how far he can jump relative to me, I call that flying. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, when you admit to that sentence, uh, Chris, I thought you were calling Misha sure. Godzilla. No. <laughs> he, he can kind of do a, so a good impression sometimes. I'm now going to be expecting like the Monday morning meeting. Misha comes on and does the Godzilla roar. Can be done. Sounds like a challenge. Yeah, why not? <laughs> it can be done. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm really excited uh, that we're bringing the meetup back. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I, I, I used to love them, right? You know, it was great that we had that one area that was big enough to fit everybody. And then we filled it up with desks and then with equipment. And <laughs> now it's, uh, it's, Storage and quality assurance right now. Is there is there a, a theme other than open house for the meetup? Is there a topic? Um, we don't have one yet. Um, we're gonna. I think. We're, I think marketing is still trying to figure out what we're actually going to be doing. I think we're going to have talks. Um, no, no. Chris was laughing there. They told me to talk about this. So it's definitely happening. Okay, okay, okay. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned here, right? It sounds like two rules are being broken, right? One is marketing was never allowed to tell you what to do on this podcast, and two <laughs> was the engineering meetup was was for um, by engineers for engineers. I don't think marketing mm-hmm. tells you what to do, right? They they advise softly. They don't tell me what to do. They didn't tell you to talk about. That. Actually, if anything, I As ask, if you I ask them for advice all the time, I guess. But I do ask them for advice all the time, especially for this podcast. But no, um, but no, they're 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 setting up the the meetup. Um, 
I think we're going to do talks. I don't know exactly. Like, we don't know if we want to do like a, a live podcast or anything like that. We don't know yet. We're still trying to work out like what we actually want to do. I'm thinking like we just do it how we used to do it. Like get a bunch of beer, pizza, and get a couple of people to talk about stuff. Mm-hmm. That, that always yeah. worked for me. I liked it. Yeah, me too. And there was good turnout. And now it's a bigger building, so we can have more people. I know. We've got to break our last record. I think what was our biggest? We had about 100 people once, right? Yeah. it was. I think we got up to like 990-something, okay. one of the last ones. And then, uh, yeah, we ended up having to use that entire like building for building stuff. And that just kind of went <laughs> away. So, um, I have, a have any other closing this. comments? Um, so I'm, I'm in a lot of customer meetings and, you know, a lot of times there are engineers in customer meetings, but a lot of times I meet with people that are in the supply chain world. Um, so in those conversations, everybody is obsessed about reshoring these days. Um, and I don't know, maybe not everybody is doing it, but they're certainly talking about it. Um, and, and there's a fair number of companies that are pulling the trigger and actually Making, I mean, even Apple, right? Like we, we've seen Apple start to yank jobs out of China and moving them to Apple's not is not moving to U.S. and Mexico, obviously, but they're um, they're going to Vietnam and India and, and Malaysia and places like that. Um, but you guys stay in touch with a lot of engineers. Is reshoring and decoupling from China a, a big topic, or is this just a thing that CNBC talks about and, and, and mostly a supply chain topic? It's something that I, this is just what I do. I, I do that. Say, I, I personally do it, I guess. Um, for supply, I, I pretty much anything with supply chain, if someone has supply chain stuff, that's where they talk about it. Um, I don't think they initially come out and, and uh, there's other external factors, right, that push them to do that. Well, I, I was just about to say, I, I would say the lion's share, if not almost a hundred percent of all um, experience I have with hearing people talk about this particular topic comes from Parker and Parker alone. Parker's very adamant about this. <laughs> and, and to be entirely frank, um, I, I've, I've heard very little from other engineers about, um, about just the, I don't know, the fervor with, with uh, yeah. bringing manufacturing back here. Yeah, it's um, like I like for me, at least it's like I'm even looking at like what my country of origin of parts are. I know a lot of engineers don't really seem to care about that. Um, I think they should care. Um, and uh, mainly for like, you know, I want to be able to build my if I'm building a product, I want to be able to keep building the products. Right. I don't want to have supply chain problems. Um, I guess that's more of a procurement. But I mean, it, it, it blows back in engineers as well, right? I mean, the um, I don't know about the reshoring topic, but like the when they were and still are, right? Like when there's so availability problems, right? I mean, we work with a whole lot of companies where you know some portion of their bomb is unobtainable. So who gets to deal with that nightmare? It's not the supply chain people. They just go back to engineering and say, "Hey, uh, give me subs, right? Like, uh, tell me which other." You know, I, I don't care where, where you, you know, how, how you redesign it, but can you, Parker, you, you and I were talking about how Tesla was able to ship cars in the same quarter that um, 
four than a bunch of others uh, ended up missing their delivery uh, targets. Um, they rewrote their firmware for different components that were available, right? So, like, it absolutely affects engineers when there's uh, supply chain shocks, right? So, um, but but I do think it's interesting that, uh, and, and, and Stephen, I, I agree with you. Like, uh, I do see the supply chain people really thinking about it now where, where maybe they weren't before. Um, but I'm not sure if the engineers are all that engaged. I think they're just kind of going with what, uh, you know, corporate side's telling them, which is, you say reshoring is important now. That's great. That has nothing to do with the design. So let me know when I need to care about it. You know? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's probably because I see it all the time uh, with our customers um, of them having to you know redesign their boards. But yeah, you're right. It's not really the engineers driving that because that's it's not at most companies. It's not the engineer that is doing procurement or making sure that you can get the parts. They go, oh, this part does the function I need and within the parameters I need. And so they select it. They don't, because they don't, they're historically not had to worry about that. But now they, I, I'm the kind of engineer that I don't like doing things twice. And so I make sure I don't have to get substitutes because <laughs> that's, or having to redesign a board for that. Um, but uh, I guess some engineers might see that as like job security. Yeah, we're certainly de- seeing that with a bunch of our. I mean, like we've never sold. Uh, I mean, like on a platform, we'll get a bunch of orders from uh, um, Germany. For some reason, Australia. I don't know why there, we have so many Australian customers on the platform. Maybe the contract manufacturing industry in Australia is especially awful because that's really far away. Like, like ordering, you know, ordering from Microfab when you're in Australia just seems like a long way to source your your parts, uh, your your assemblies, right? But um, we're all of a sudden dealing with a bunch of European customers. And I ask them, you know, why now? Like, we've never talked to Europeans before. And they said they had a bunch of their North American customers that said, get out of China. Um, I even talked to a Taiwanese uh, ODM, and they were told by their customers, get out of China, which is pretty wild. Uh, Like, you wouldn't think a Taiwanese ODM would start looking for North American factory capacity, but they are. They're out there now searching for... How to, and you know, this is like business continuity, right? Like, how do you, like, if something happens with Taiwan and China, you can't just have a contract with somebody that says, I will start building in, in, in US or Mexico. That's not how any of this works. Like, you can't go from cold start to production. So, there's a bunch of people now thinking about this stuff. So, I wonder if that's going to be a, a bigger topic. It, it will be a bigger topic. Um, it's just, I don't know if engineers will, no, I, I guess. will care. <laughs> I care. I care a lot about it. Um, but I've, it's always been a big stickler for me, at least. Um, I, 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 I try to use this podcast to push that, I guess. Yeah. We, look, we, we may end up starting another podcast about this topic. Uh, the, the, uh, so some of this is driven by our marketing team. They were like, look, Chris Church is going to get a podcast and Meech is going to have a podcast. And and then we decided like, look, that's just insane. First of all, nobody wants to hear us talk that much. But uh, but I do think, you know, the supply chain topics we're talking about, I think engineers sometimes care about it and sometimes don't. So like I wouldn't want to come, come into the Macrofab Engineering podcast and make it a, a reshoring podcast. That would probably... You, you, I think a lot of people would get bored really quickly, but so we, we might end up uh, starting a separate vehicle for that. And uh, I think I already have the first guest 
uh, for it identified. It's a pretty interesting guy. He was, uh, um, so you guys know how like US has been taking it to Huawei pretty hard and just, I mean, there's just been a lot of tension between US and Huawei. Like we restricted their ability to sell in US and then we got a bunch of other countries to restrict their ability to, to sell in other countries. I think like the daughter of their CFO got arrested in Canada at one point. It's been like a, a like a escalation after escalation. The latest one has been, um, I think, Huawei is now getting hit with export control. So like they're not going to be able to buy all the chips they want to buy manufactured in the U.S., for example. So um, it all started somewhere. So I found uh, this guy um, who kind of championed this work for the National Security Council. Um, so he'll be he'll be the first guy that we'll probably have on our uh, – so I don't know how many episodes we're going to do. Where we're gonna, I definitely want to hear from this guy because um, – and when you think about it, this is now um, a policy that has survived two different presidents. Like this guy worked in the Trump uh, administration. The Biden policy I think is even more hardcore. So um, this isn't like a – you know, somebody's political view, I think this has become an American policy all of a sudden. So uh, I, I'm super interested to hear how he thinks about it because like at the, at the NSC, I think he had a portfolio of figuring out, like figure out which companies um, are maybe a threat to national security. Uh, and I guess Huawei was definitely on the list and TikTok was the other one, right? So I, um, that, 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 that's what they went after. But I think we'll see more of that. Like I... I would not be surprised if things got hot enough to where uh, more companies got blacklisted. And at some point, the supply chains didn't completely come apart. But let's say that there were two different spheres, and it maybe is not the best idea to dip into those spheres equally for some parts, right? So I, I do think he'll affect engineers eventually. So um, I think this guy will be an interesting guest. I think he'll be somebody they'll give us an perspective on, like, when we start to blacklist a company like Huawei, how does that start exactly? Like, is there a playbook for doing that? And uh, are we going to do more of that in the future, right? I mean, are there going to be more companies under sanctions? And uh, like Huawei doesn't affect us at all, right? Like we don't buy anything from Huawei. We're not a telecommunications company. But if component suppliers get on get on, um, on the wrong side of the government, it will absolutely affect a bunch of product. So stay tuned. We'll, we'll announce it here. Um, so... You know when we when we're doing the first episode, but I but I think we're gonna do at least one of them because that one sounds interesting. Yeah, um, when you when you do that podcast, or actually before, so we can let our listeners know. You know what? I funny you say that they might not be interested. That when we talk about the supply chain stuff, that those are some of our most downloaded episodes. Um, it might also just be because like. Other people besides engineers are downloading it, and that might be a big Yeah, but we don't have like any particular plan. So, like, we can certainly just invite them on this podcast, right? Like, if we think there's going to be enough, enough interest. To... No, no, no. Look, I'll join. I think he, you know, he, he and I both come from a cybersecurity background, so we got plenty to talk, talk about. Um, I don't think he knows I'm not a Trump voter. Um, so, um, I'll add some spice to it. We, we, we can do, Misha, as you can. What we can do, Misha, is we can write a custom intro that you can read. <laughs> can, can it be written by ChatGPT in a uh, in a Westworld style? That's that's what I want. Sure. No, I, I think we'll, you know, we'll we'll come up with more Any more closing topics. And, and look, you know, we we got a Slack channel, so uh, we can socialize them and see how people feel about them. But I I, I do think that 
like, I don't know. The supply chain stuff has seems to have exited the realm of topics nobody cares about. And all of a sudden, like, I mean, Jack White, you know, like he had a tour called uh, Supply Chain Issues. So all of a sudden, this stuff is like top of mind for a bunch of people. So uh, I don't think it's going your way. I think it's going to, this to- I think this topic is going to keep evolving. So we're going to keep, uh, I-, I think we should talk about the CHIPS Act at some point, right? And we have a couple of people on the board that I think would be really interesting, um, that would have an interesting perspective on this. Uh, you know, one guy used to work at TTI for 17 years. The other guy um, is at Silicon Labs. So he spends a lot of time in, um, in Taiwan and, you know, the produces through some of the largest uh, um, uh, fabs out there. So, the, like, when you ask me about the Chips Act, I have some opinions. Chris has some opinions. But, I mean, those guys, like, it, it definitely affects them. So I think that's another problem. They can totally fill an hours of podcasts of content. I mean, in, in no small part because, like, nobody knows yet. Like, uh, uh, like people don't realize the Chips Act is just so big. I think I'm just going from memory, but I, it's a $47 billion bill just for fabs, right? Just to build fabs in North America. But the entirety of the package is like $217 billion. So then the question is, well, what's the other $150 billion used for? And the answer is they don't know exactly. Um, it, it's such a big appropriation. I asked the guy about it. I was like, hey, I, like I don't think it affects Macrofab at all. So like I'm interested, but I'm not trying to get any of the money. But I was like, but if I was to get some of the money, how would I get it? And he was like, you hire a lobbyist and you start going to meetings because the $150 billion hasn't exactly been spent yet. And it will be a multi-year process just to figure out how to spend it. Um, it'll, it'll be an evolving thing. No, nobody knows how that much money gets spent and what kind of impact it makes. You know? So yeah, more, more stuff to talk about. I guess that we can finally close on this podcast then. We can close it out. Well, thanks so much for, uh, <laughs> sure. for coming on Chris and Misha. We appreciate it. Of course. <laughs> always, always glad to be here. With you guys. I was going to come once, but now you want to come um, back. Don't say, don't say you didn't ask for this. <laughs> Oh, I, I like having y'all on the podcast. Yeah, that's why I was great. like, when I was looking up earlier today and when the last time you were on, I'm like, that's not right. Y'all have been on sooner than that. Nope. It's been five years, Misha. We'll try to give engineers some space not to get too, <laughs> too weird in here. You know? It's already weird. If anything, this might be the most normal podcast we have in a while. <laughs> so that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Doman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Cheers. Thank you. Yes, you are a listener for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, or you want to see more of Misha and Chris, let Stephen and I know. Tweet us at MacFab at Longhorn Engineer or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at macfab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel, 